Welcome everybody to our event today, the Internet and Islamophobia. My name is Fumida Rahman, I'll be chairing this event. And I'm very pleased to be joined by award-winning journalist Baima Bakar, Sahed Amanullah from the Institute for Strategic Dialogue and Mikdad Versi from the Muslim Council of Britain. So today's event is part of the Web Roots Democracy Festival, which is marking the end of the organization after six and a half amazing years. And I have to say, having been involved in it from the very start, it has been an incredible six and a half years. If you're following along and wish to tweet about today's discussion, please do so using the hashtag WebRootsFest. And if you're following us on Zoom or Facebook Live, please feel free to send questions throughout and we'll try to put them through our panelists to, towards the end. So we'll get straight into it and I'll start with you, Dad. So you've been leading the way really on rooting out Islamophobia in, in British media. How do you describe Islamophobia and how prevalent do you think it is? I think Islamophobia is very prevalent. Um, whatever avenue you look through which you look at it, um, whichever polling you look at, it comes across the same. I mean, uh, depending on which polling you look at, between 30 and 40% think that, you know, that they have major issues with Muslims in some way. For example, there's uh, one poll which says that 37% of people in this country would support policies to reduce the number of Muslims in the country. Um, you know, it, it's it's crazy. Some of these, I mean, some of those are, are, are one-off polls, but if you look at them, there's another poll which says that half the population think Islam is a threat to the British way of life. You know, you, you look at all of these things together and you think, you know, where are these ideas coming from? And you, you actually, even when it comes to young children, right? So 31% of young children in the largest poll ever done of children between the ages of 10 and 14 a couple of years ago said that 31% of them said that Muslims are taking over England. Um, and, and like, this is young children. They have no, you know, it's not their fault. You know, they're young children. They're 10, between 10 and 14. That's the type of attitudes and the narratives that have been embedded within society that Muslims are this big threat that they're taking over. Um, and, and, and then you look at the other types of ones uh, uh, polling out there. And when you try and look at the idea of Muslims being sexual groomers, Muslims being terrorists, Muslims being there are all these tropes about Muslims, which have really gained a, a really strong foothold uh, within many sections of, uh, of society. And unfortunately, you know, driven in many places by elements of the media, driven in some places by the way that politicians talk about it. The Cambridge University did a study which showed that the the way that Muslims are talked about by politicians and by media drive an atmosphere of hostility is what they called it towards Muslims and other uh, studies at the University of Lancaster, Leicester and others have said some similar things. So you have this big barrage of things happening, but one of the things that's really important nowadays is obviously online interaction, whether it's through WhatsApp, whether it's through um, Facebook, whether it's through Twitter. And you, you've seen so many different, in, in each of these areas, you see that people are sort of consuming news in different and new ways. Um, when you look at it, uh, in different places, people, uh, we have different stats, but at least half of, the, half of the population, if not more, will gain their news from WhatsApp. Uh, that's one study that was done, that was in India, but I, I think it's probably going to be similar in, in, in other countries as well. Other people can probably attest to some of this. And when you see the role of groups and platforms like Facebook, I mean, they had to apologize for the way that their platform was used in the massacre in, in, in many of the killings in, in Sri Lanka, for example, and, and across the globe. Like when you look at these other platforms which are, which are feeding this, you have, you have to try and understand where is this all coming from. And often the source of some of these things comes from elements of mainstream media, which then get twisted and pushed and, 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 and narratives get created. And that's why whilst when you see the stats of how many people rely on mainstream media or trust mainstream media, the latest polling suggests about 25% trust the journalists, which is really low in a democracy when you want to have a strong media. About 50 to 60% or 60% plus um, trust newsreaders. So actually broadcasters get, uh, you know, get more trust. But if you're a, a print journalist, only 20, a quarter of the population trusts you. And, and, and this, the, these are the things that drive many of the problems that we face because some of this stuff is, is, is incorrect. And, and, and lies about Muslims which have been propagated. And there's so many examples, like hundreds of examples which I have, which we've, we've sort of 
collated the Center for Media Monitoring and Muslim Council of Britain's work, hundreds of examples of these literally false stories which have been propagated out there. And what you do is you get these far-right actors who take this, they share it, and that becomes a narrative. They have propagated this narrative and they said, oh look, the Times said Muslims are silent on terrorism on their front page. So that means it must be right. And then they add their own commentary. It then gets viral. It then goes across, um, uh, it gets twisted and, and lots of people start believing this stuff because that's what they read in their, in their social media feed. So I think that Islamophobia is a major problem. I think it's propagated significantly um, through all these different outlets. And unfortunately, the amount of work that's required is significant to get anywhere in terms of moving the needle, because we have to recognize that actually most people don't care. And that's my biggest worry. And do you think, sort of, you talked about various different platforms. Do you think Islamophobia looks different in all of these different spaces, or do you think it's the same beast, essentially? I think that it definitely has different contours and different approaches. So, for example, on broadcast media, I think it's generally less Islamophobia overtly, but it's a lot. there's a lot of subtle Islamophobia in sort of broadcast media. When it comes to print media, it starts becoming more overt because people are willing to be more biased and they're allowed. Regulation gives them greater space to be more biased in the approaches that they take, you know. Um, uh, and then if you go into the social media space, then you have a free-for-all and it becomes much more hard. But if you, if you actually look at the underlying narratives, the stereotypes, Muslims are terrorists, Muslims hate Jews, Muslims, um, Muslim men are all misogynists. All of these things, they might be elements of uh, truth to parts of what they're saying, but the generalized approach that comes out from these, these stereotype generalizations are hugely damaging usually dangerous and, and a common theme throughout. But let's just remember some of the worst people that we've talked about. We know, for example, people like Katie Hopkins, right? We know that she was on LBC, on a broadcaster, spouting her hatred until she ended up saying some really hostile things to Muslims. Then she got, then she was off. But then she was on social media for a long time, propagating her hate on, so, oh, sorry, she was, she was on the sun for a long time, propagating her hate in, in a newspaper. And, and the Mail Online, but then she got pushed into social media. And then even on social media, she's now being cut out. But you can see this hierarchy where she, someone of her, her um, hostility towards Muslims has been able to have a, 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 not a small platform, a major platform across every element of touching society. It shows how, how, how powerful and been, um, dangerous this is. And also noting that someone like Stig Abel, he used to be the editor of The Sun when um, Katie Hopkins was there. He, he's seen as a liberal, reasonable guy, but he was publishing Katie Hopkins's craziness, you know, her stuff, for example, about refugees being cockroaches and, and dehumanizing them. This is a, he was the editor, of the, he's seen as a reasonable, liberal, mainstream figure now, without having even had to apologize or have, or be held to account for publishing this, 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 this hostility and Islamophobia and racism and disgustingness. And I think that's what the problem I think, I think the biggest problem, whilst Islamophobia is obviously different across all these different forms, is the biggest problem for me is that there is no accountability as a whole, with some exceptions, for, the, the, for Islamophobia across um, many of mainstream characters. And unfortunately it's become very normalized across society. So that sort of takes me nicely to the other thing I sort of really wanted to ask you about, and that's this spreadsheet that you've been maintaining. I hear you've recorded every article written about Muslims since 2016. Can you tell us a bit about that and what you've learned from doing that? Yeah, so in the early days, in the, in the first couple of years, um, what, what I used to do was every time any article mentioned Islam or Muslim, um, I used to um, recognize, you know, I used to Google search, I used to use the search tools and find out in the last 24 hours or 48 hours um, who's been writing about Islam or Muslim, look at all of those articles, type them out if they were problematic and keep them in a spreadsheet to, to work it out. That was obviously a very time consuming thing, which, which, which had massive impact, I think, in terms of um, being the, the basis on which I sort of made lots of complaints and, and got, um, got a lot of articles changed. But what, what that was, the, the, the value of that was creating a base and a methodology which I felt could then be replicated. And from that, we were able to raise some money and we have now you know, a Center for Media Monitoring in the Muslim Council of Britain where we have um, tools which autom automatically collate a lot of these articles which mention Islam and Muslims. And then we have people who sort of allocate these articles and, 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 and literally go through every single one, not just articles, but also any clips online. And they categorize them based on 10 different metrics and decide based on those 10 different metrics and in, in, in a sort of academically robust way, are they biased or not? Are they positive or not? And therefore on, on a holistic basis, 
We don't just look at, therefore, those which are inaccurate in a dangerous sense, which we were talking about before. What we are also now looking at is, if you look at a whole, if you look at a whole across all media mentions of Islam and Muslims, which is where a lot of these things start from, are they generally positive or negative? And are they generally misleading or not? Even, because some of these might not break, break any regulatory rules, but that's not what matters. A lot of the Islamophobia that spreads is not something which is illegal. It's not something which is against the regulation. It's something which is pernicious in its, in its negativity about Muslims. It's something about, if you, if you receive 100 stories about Muslims and you don't know any Muslims, and 99 of them are all negative, that causes a big issue in your psyche about what Muslims are. And I think that's what we've hopefully been able to move from. Um, and then we, we sort of started doing, you know, in-depth studies on how Muslims are reported on when it comes to terrorism um, and, and, and uh, highlighting examples of newspapers which are worse and better. And we've got many more things coming up. But it's not just about the This is all sort of reactive. We also do a lot of proactive stuff now, engaging with managing editors directly, senior producers directly, um, uh, you know, editors of the BBC and, and, and uh, the Times, and Sunday, sorry, the Sunday Times all the time. Um, and, and talking to them and getting, seeing, seeing hold, trying to hold them to account and bring them into our roundtable discussions to try and improve their reporting on Islam and Muslims when it comes to all these different issues. So it's, it's been a journey from starting from a spreadsheet onto a big, you know, uh, 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 the Center for Media Monitoring with three members of staff and, 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 and regular roundtables with top journalists across the country, um, as well as, you know, huge uh, seminars, et cetera, and, and, and big reports. But I think that journey has been really valuable and it's really great to have started literally by Googling names on, on, on Google and then and now it's it's a full reporting schedule. So it's, it's a great journey to, to yeah. be part of. That's really incredible that you've sort of come this far in this journey. I think, I guess the big question then is have things sort of in the years that you've been doing this, have you noticed any shift? Have things changed a little bit for the better or are we sort of moving into a sort of more deeply Islamophobic cesspit? I think that some things have got better. Um, I have seen slightly fewer, and I, I, I mean, we have to be slightly conscious of the word and use this, slightly fewer overtly inaccurate pieces. Um, uh, let me give you a couple of, so, so for example, The Sun had this, um, this situation where, where they said that um, gunmen shouted Allahu Akbar in a Spanish supermarket, something like that, right? Um, and what, it was just a, a made up article. And what actually ended up happening was it was a Basque separatist. So they can't, they must speak Arabic, they speak Basque, right? So it was nothing to do with Muslims. Um, and, and they said it was a, 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 they said terror attack, gunmen shouted Allah Akbar at the end of the supermarket. They realized that was a, a load of rubbish. Um, they, they changed it to horror. They didn't want to call it terror anymore uh, because it's obviously not a Muslim. So um, they call it horror and they changed it afterwards to say it was a Basque separatist. Fine. I spoke to them to get that change done. Fine. Two weeks later, they made a very similar error. Okay, <laughs> they, they literally they did. They, and the problem was that they were citing these Central European um, news agencies who just literally find pieces of right-wing nonsense and and publish it out there on, on a wire, which people then use. And they have now realised that some of these wires are not reliable. And now, because you know we called them out when they lied a few times, they're being more careful. So you can see some elements of improvement. That's, I just wanted to use that example to demonstrate that there's tangible improvements that they're not doing that kind of thing anymore. But at the same time, you know, you still see random lies about sometimes Muslims or, or, or ethnic groups or race groups quite regularly. I mean, uh, on the front page of the Telegraph for, for a lot of the day, just earlier this year, there was a thing saying that 90% of COVID cases come from Pakistan, from Pakistan right? And you let you, you uh, were so surprised. And, what, what had happened was that they were talking only about those people who had come in from this country within a, a two week period. And it was, it, was, it was basically a massively skewed thing. So it was factually, you could possibly argue that one element is true, but the, the, the headline didn't give that impression at all. And we're going through this whole journey with, with the press regulator right now to try and get it, um, uh, to get, give them a slap on the wrist. And that's all they're gonna get on the back of it. So is it getting better? Yes. Are there still major issues? Unfortunately, and when we when you have a situation where we have very few Muslims within mainstream media, only 0.4% of journalists, according to one city from City University, said uh, are Muslim, and if only 0.4% of, of journalists are Muslim, and Muslims are about four to five percent of the population, that's a tenth of what it should be proportionately, and that, that's a huge issue. And if Muslims aren't on the table, then many of these things sometimes pass. And I, I've spoken to many Muslim journalists 
um, who, who are, you know, who I know quite well, who, who have been in a very difficult situation. They don't want to be, um, and, and, and I'm sure uh, uh, Fahima probably can speak about it more, but you know, they don't want to be the person who's the, the Muslim who only talks about Muslim-related issues. They don't want to be the one who's always complaining that you got it wrong all the time. And, and, but, but at the same time, you know, they're at the table and, and, and therefore there's some sort of level of responsibility that they want to do that. And so, you know, I've, I've had one friend who said they remember being in a situation where everyone was talking about a story about Muslims and they were, you know, relatively junior, but they were in the editorial room and, and they were like, this doesn't sound right. This, this can't be right. Are you sure? What is it based on? And through them just asking that question, what ended up happening was they realized the story was actually very weak and they ended up not running it. But that was just because my friend happened to be at the room at the time. Um, and, and I think that very often we know, and I know someone else who, who was at uh, the famous one in five Brit Muslim story on the front page of the Sun, which is in the Times and other places. I know someone who was involved in, in was at one of the newspapers which published that story. Um, and they actually raised it with the editor saying, this is, this is not right, this is misleading, it's not right, it's not how it is. And they got rolled over and the story still was published and later they had to retract it. And so what you see is that there is the ability to, to, to make a real difference whilst being there. So I'd say things are getting better, but there's a long way to go. And we need, you know, it, it's about fantastic stories coming out from people like Fahima in, in, in the Metro and other places like, who, who, you know, when you have more Muslims there, it helps, but it shouldn't be only up to Muslims. This is up to society yeah. as a whole to deal with it. Yeah, so I'm going to bring you, Fahima, next. So you, yourself, are a journalist at one of the UK's largest online media outlets. So what's your perspective on the media's relationship with Islam? Um, I think everything that McDad said is pretty much bang on the point. Um, I think the media plays a huge role uh, in perpetuating Islamophobia. Um, and, you know, various research shows that the media that we consume shapes our beliefs and our attitudes. Um, and so the media has sort of latched on to, to, unfortunately, the mainstream media has latched on to Islamophobia. And so they perpetuate um, you know, the, the myth that Muslim men, for example, are dangerous or bad or predatory. And for Muslim women, they, you know, they're oppressed and submissive and, and so on. And, you know, you occasionally get news writers that have sort of latched on to, they, they stoke these tensions by publishing stereotypical content. Um, and um, this is something that McDad has obviously pointed out. They will mention, you know, Muslim where it's not necessary, just where it doesn't warrant it. But they'll sort of um, ignore that when it's a white, you know, perpetrator, or you know, if it's like a, you know. Um, so, for example, um, terrorists who happen to be Muslim, they receive um, recent. It was not that recent, actually. Two years ago, there was a study that said terrorists are Muslim receive 357% more press attention, uh, averaging something like I don't know 104 more he four headlines. Whereas where the terrorists' um, religion isn't mentioned, they get like the average about 15 headlines, which is quite a huge difference. Um, and also, it's quite ironic considering that even more recent research shows that the majority of terrorists actually tend to be white, not even Muslim. Um, but you know, again, the, the newsrooms and editors they play up to the, this idea of Muslims being inherently very violent, um, and this is something that we see with other kinds of stories as well. Like, for example, grooming gangs, as Nick Dad mentioned, um, where the perpetrators are Muslim. Again, that's played up. Their religion is mentioned in headlines quite often, even though the religion doesn't have anything to do with it. There's nothing inherently. Um, you know, um, violent about Islam as a religion, but and yet we keep seeing those kind of stories being published time and time again. Um, and I've written about this as well, sort of this myth of Muslim grooming gangs. Um, and, um, you know, the research shows that statistically it's 90% of white men that are uh, convicted of those kind of sort of sexual offences. And I appreciate that we obviously live in the UK, so there are more white people, but it's interesting that the crimes of these men don't typify white men or even like the Catholic Church covering up sexual abuse and stuff like that. It doesn't typify white people, but when it's, you know, um, the crimes of a few Muslim men, suddenly that speaks for the entire Muslim community and it homogenizes them. Um, so yeah, absolutely, the media plays a huge role when it kind of keeps pushing these kinds of stories. Yeah, and I think you yourself have been subject to quite a lot of Islamophobic abuse. And I'd like, I'd, I'd be interested to hear a bit about your experience of sort of being on the receiving end, particularly as a woman and as a non-Hijabi Muslim woman. Yeah, um, so whenever, because 
I'm I'm not a news writer, so I'm a lifestyle writer. So I t I tend not to cover sort of the newsy newsy you know bits. So what I do in my work, I try to center Muslims in a in a different sort of way, in sort of investigative long form features that sort of thing. And whenever I center Muslim people, I get one rhetoric all the time from Islamophobes, and it's always what about what about the Muslim grooming gangs? You know, um, as if like as I say, the crimes of of a few you know speak for everyone, and it's like I can't humanize Muslims I can't celebrate Muslims I can't even victimize them without someone piping up and just being like you know well Muslim men just rape white girls you know they just completely sh just shut me out and they don't want to listen to what I've got to say um what even if it's like a completely like happy story about Muslims celebrating Ramadan or something um and for the the grooming gang piece that I mentioned earlier um I, I published that earlier in the year and it was I just got so much, I got such a huge torrent of abuse for it. Um, I was getting emails, Facebook messages, Instagram DMs. Um, I started getting death threats and like rape threats. And uh, apparently my address was posted online somewhere. So I had to involve Met Police and, and call them and give several statements. And that obviously takes up a huge part of my time I spent a lot of time talking to police and um you know and that had a huge mental um impact on me this was like at the beginning of the first lockdown so I remember just being really scared because what someone said they've got your address it's like, it's like I live at home with my family you know like god you, you just don't know what could happen especially considering the very real hate that certain individuals have towards Muslims and the sort of the string of violences that we see against Muslims all the time around the world. It was a very sort of real fear that someone could actually hurt me. Um, in a way, I am quite, uh, obviously I'm not visible, like if you see me on the street, you might not assume that I'm Muslim because I don't wear a headscarf. So, you know, I probably don't get the same amount of, you know, looks or comments or stares that, uh, you know, a visibly Muslim woman might get if she's wearing a burqa on the carb. But at the same time, being a visibly Muslim woman online, there was still that, that fear. And there is still that fear that someone might recognize me off, off Twitter or my articles and, you know, get violent with me. So there's definitely that fear. Um, and also interestingly as well, actually, because as I say, I'm a lifestyle writer, so I do I do do the serious stuff, but I also write about you know fun stuff like sex and dating and relationships, and because certain people see me as like a Muslim ambassador or whatever because there are so few Muslim writers um, sometimes I'll get comments from both sides from like the Muslim community who will be like oh why are you writing about sex and and you know gay marriage and stuff and then I'll, I'll even get it from like the other side like recently I got an email from this white guy and he was like oh if you're Muslim then why are you writing about sex that's not very Muslim of you so it's just it's really strange um and I feel like there's, there's like an attempt to sort of pigeonhole me. Like if I'm if I'm going to write about Islam, then I can't write about other things. Um, so it's certainly an interesting experience um, of being a visibly you know online, sorry, a very present Muslim woman online. Yeah, it's really interesting to sort of hear about the duality of it, the sort of experience of Islamophobia from Islamophobes, but also what you get internally from the sort of Muslim community. That's the last thing I really wanted to ask you is to what extent do you think these internet and particularly social media itself can fuel Islamophobia and how does it do that and how has it sort of affected your experience? Yeah, so there are, there's many pockets of the internet that can sort of fuel Islamophobia. Uh, as we said, mainstream media is definitely one of them uh, in the headlines that we see in the kind of stories that get picked up and also in the imagery that, uh, that, that they choose to use. Um, we're seeing this especially now in the pandemic. We saw a lot of images of Muslim communities uh, for COVID stories that, ne that didn't necessarily have anything to do with Muslim groups, but again, sort of making those sort of subconscious associations between Muslims and you know what's going on in the world. Um, so yeah, the mainstream media definitely, but also social media has, is a huge player as well, um, especially sort of websites like Reddit. Reddit is a really important one because it sort of prides itself on being a free speech platform um, and you've got this real danger of young people especially um, being potentially radicalized and I, I covered uh, this uh, like a year ago or so um, the manosphere which is the um, 
online an online platform for Muslim, not for, for men generally to speak about whatever they want. And there, there's more and more young people, young men especially, getting involved in that. Um, and there's a huge incel culture, which is uh, in, involuntarily celibate men, who for, for, for the most part are, you know, are sort of, they share that philosophy of, you know, hating women or, you know, they think women owe them sex. But there's also subcultures of, you know, racism, Islamophobia, and all sorts of isms going on because it's not regulated. So they, the, you know, these young young people who are very impressionable are, you know, joining these alt-right Islamophobic corners of the internet and it's unregulated. So they're just completely embroiled in these communities that don't have their ideologies and their thoughts and their speech challenged at all. So it's very easy to, built an idea of, of the world uh, you know just to, to stay in the echo chamber without any sort of outside or different perspective yeah definitely um just a reminder to anyone listening along um please do put your questions in the q a and we'll sort of we can put them to the panelists later um so that's a really good point to sort of move on to Sahid, who's been looking at this from a global perspective and I'm aware you've done quite a bit of research on the internet and Islamophobia. Can you tell us a bit about your research? Sure. Um, I mean, where to start? I mean, first of all, um, a lot of what McDad and uh, Faima said um, covers the, the basis of what we're trying to track online um, in a very detailed way. We're looking at basically the, this culture that is Come, come of age in the last 10, 20 years where it's okay to, uh, to, to basically slander Muslims uh, without any consequences. What we're interested in doing is tracking how, this, uh, how these phenomenon are amplified and, um, and weaponized, frankly, um, with social media platforms and online in general. And, and a lot of our research has been looking at extremism writ large um, you know, from wherever it comes from, because we see patterns that are very familiar. Um, and when we look at Islamophobia in particular, one of the things that we've been tracking recently in the, uh, in the last few years is how Islamophobia is weaponized in the context of political elections. And you name the country. Uh, I did a long research project in Kenya where that was the case. And we've seen it in Sri Lanka, we've seen it in India, um, and of course, in the West, all over Europe and the United States, and we see we see spikes where you know it's one of those tools that gets used because it's so effective um, and and so easy to use without consequence uh, that it is you can count on it being implemented the closer you get to an election, and of course, how it's used it, it, it's used in many ways either to uh, disenfranchise Muslims themselves or to attack candidates that are standing up for Muslims or sympathetic to Muslims or Muslim themselves. Um, and, you know, it's, um, it's, it's done, of course, on all the platforms we know, uh, because, uh, you know, as McDodd referred to earlier, you know, we're talking about things that may not be illegal, but certainly do leverage these feelings about Muslims in a way that achieves the, it achieves the aims of those who are implementing those strategies. So one of the things that we've done recently, in addition to tracking how Islamophobia is weaponized in elections, is we've just now finished a project. Well, finished. We're in the in the final stages of it, working with uh, a whole host of civil society organizations in the U.S. over the past year, uh, particularly Muslim organizations, on how to build resilience uh, and combat Islamophobia, especially when it is used to disenfranchise Muslim voters or Muslim candidates or activities to support, uh, to support them. And it's been a fascinating process uh, because we're, we're talking about organizations in the US like CARE, MPAC, Engage, who have uh, spent many years learning the ropes on how to navigate the political scene, but of course have had to deal with Islamophobia and mostly online um, used to disrupt them. Um, and it filters into the into the mainstream culture, into the into the press, and into even um, Hollywood, even entertainment. You know, uh, all those the, you know the Venn diagrams that overlap when it comes to Islamophobia are, you know, are incredible to to to, to sort of witness. Um, but 
going specific, looking specifically at the election because I think there's so much to learn there. Um, you know, we we looked at it from two ways. One is how can community organizations, especially Muslim organizations that represent communities or candidates for office, defend themselves effectively against disinformation, and that's a lot of Islamophobia is rooted in disinformation um, that attempts to sort of silence them or um, or um, cease their activities. Um, and the other thing is who's amplifying this stuff? You know, a lot of the research that we've done shows that, you know, there is authentic behavior and inauthentic behavior. Inauthentic behavior, of course, is when you have a, a state or non-state actor come and look at a at a you know phenomenon, a trend that's happening online, and they choose to amplify it in ways that are often hard to detect. And we saw evidence of this, for example, in the 2016 election, when state actors like Russia would get involved in the US election or or even here in the UK with Brexit. Um, I mean, there were there was a case, for example, in 2016 where you know Russian trolls, you know, uh, artificially pitted a a Muslim organization and a, and, and a far right organization to get their followers to meet online uh, on the ground and actually, you know, it, you know, um, confront each other. I mean, it's it's really insidious how how uh, uh, you know an, a, a player that's relatively anonymous can can use Islamophobia to stir up conflict. And of course, this has had deadly aims and you know de deadly consequences in Myanmar and Sri Lanka, as was mentioned before. And earlier this year, with when COVID-19 came on the scene, we saw a really concerted effort. We have a report on this, on how um, the the coronavirus was. You know, there was a, a a move to blame Muslims for the spread of coronavirus, the Corona Jihad phenomenon. Um, and in in a place like India, where there's already so much happening against Muslims, and with a, with a government that is openly hostile. Uh, you know, this had very serious consequences. And a lot of that, of course, because we're talking about the internet, spread to Hindutva groups in the US, uh, you know, who were, you know, uh, uh, who were um, being openly courted by Trump uh, when Modi visited and so forth. So I mean, there's, you know, the, it, it's, it's the most reliable tool in the toolbox of, you know, political actors that, um, that want to, um, mobilized followers uh, to uh, for, for political aims. And, you know, so it, it, so we, we've spent a lot of time this year, it was, I mean, a lot of my year has been spent um, working with these organizations in the US to try to, you know, in anticipation of this, we knew this was gonna happen. We knew this was gonna be weaponized. Um, and um, it started out really by, you know, what we, what we do is we map trends online um, and we, we do search for the inauthentic um, amplifiers, you know, because if you can if you can identify those actors, you could search for ways to marginalize them either with the cooperation of the social media platforms, or by naming and shaming, frankly, um, you know, in order to to limit their ability to amplify Islamophobic content. And um, the one thing that I will I will say that was very interesting about this year is that in the US, and it's probably a byproduct of the Trump era, you had more Muslims running for public office than ever before. And part of the challenge and part of the response to Islamophobia is, 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 have, is crafting the narrative. You know, and, and that involves getting involved in the public space, whether it's in the media, uh, you know, whether it's in journalism, as Fimo was mentioning, uh, in mainstream media, or in the political space. And that is probably one of the most effective ways to push back against the impact of Islamophobia as it, you know, and, and the plausibility of a lot of the disinformation about Muslims that's promoted online. So, um, you know, it turns out that, uh, you know, after, now that the elections are over, 57 out of 110 Muslims that ran for state level office and above were elected, including Muslims in very red states. Um, and so I think there's there's maybe a sliver of good news here as to how we can overcome the very real you know um, spread of Islamophobia, the weaponization of it, by standing up, crafting that new narrative um, head on, and showing the diversity that exists amongst Muslim populations. 
that alone dispels a lot of the narratives. And um, I think there's a light at the end of the tunnel. If we can continue to do that, um, we can limit the in, limit the the way that Islamophobia is weaponized. Um, so you spoke earlier about sort of in the election, um, Islamophobia wasn't actually the most prominent sort of campaign out there. Can you tell me a little bit more about the sort of different forces that were at play and how they sort of relate to Islamophobia or what the sort of commonalities are there and how we sort of go about tackling sort of these hateful campaigns sort of as a whole, really? Yeah. Well, we, we started 2020 with working with a lot of Muslim organizations in the US thinking, feeling that Islamophobia was going to be the key uh, driver used against them, and especially against Muslim candidates running for office. But one of the things that is different this year than it was two years ago, four years ago, were some very prominent Muslims, of course, elected to Congress. I'm speaking about Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, um, and others. And in, a, in the political scene, nothing more in the United States has, has, has um, started to shift the perception of Muslims than the elections of Muslims to federal office in the US. And, um, and it turned, and of course they were handily reelected, you know, with, with huge majorities, despite everything. And you've all seen the stuff that's been thrown at them from Trump, especially, um, and none of it stuck. And I think, again, a sliver of good news here is that when you have that platform, and you have that attention, how you use it to push back against Islamophobia can be effective, you know, um, and especially if it's done in a way that is rooted in social justice, rooted in getting allies to to stand alongside us, um, for, you know, in in defense of Islamophobia. I mean that that that's you know that was true from the day the Muslim ban was put into place. I I remember flying into the U.S the week that Trump was inaugurated to a sea of faces protesting the Muslim ban in Washington. And they were not just Muslims, they were a, from a whole variety of backgrounds. This is part of the answer. Part of the answer for us to push back against Islamophobia is to, is to make sure that we have those partnerships. Um, and I think that did a lot this election season. You know, uh, there was so much noise in the air about the subversion of democracy, about, you know, getting out the vote and so forth, that Islamophobia turned out to be not, you know, one of the leading um, barriers for a lot of the Muslim organizations working in the U.S. It does, again, it doesn't mean that Islamophobia wasn't used. In fact, it was used against a lot of mainstream candidates running because they had, you know, stood up for Muslims uh, during the Muslim ban and elsewhere. You know, they were the ones who were getting, you know, the sort of Islamophobic attacks uh, almost more than the Muslim candidates. I mentioned before that, you know, everything that was thrown at Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib didn't stick. Um, and um, so there was a sense there that actually, you know what, maybe we can navigate through this. And again, the focus was getting out the Muslim vote. M-Gage, one of the organizations leading that charge, got a million Muslims to go out and vote in key swing states. And it likely tipped the difference in favor of Biden. Um, and you know, this is despite the Islamophobia that was leveraged against them as an organization. So, um, so it's uh, you know, again, that is okay. That's one side of the equation. The other side is what do the social media platforms and their role have to do, you know, with with the way that Islamophobia has been has been amplified. Just this past week, Senator Dick Durbin wrote, uh, you know, uh, rallied thirteen of his colleagues to write a letter to Facebook to take anti-Muslim bigotry seriously. This probably wouldn't have happened a couple of weeks ago or even a couple of years ago, but there's a sense now that one, now that one of the biggest drivers of Islamophobia, which is President Trump himself, is soon to be out of office, that we can now take this issue seriously. Um, we can have a serious conversation with the social media platforms. We've done it for other similar issues. We did a report on Holocaust denial uh, on Facebook and Facebook you know, whether it was because of our reporter or otherwise, did end up changing their policy on Holocaust denial because, uh, you know, all the people who were using it were using it to inflame hatred against Jews. So we, there, there are precedents being set about how we can start to address Islamophobia on platforms. Um, and we can start to find out where those boundaries are, whether it's rooted in 
regulation uh, or it's rooted in the terms of service of these com of these companies themselves, we'll find that inshallah we'll find that sort of um, that uh, middle ground, which will at least minimize the way that Islamophobia is used to disenfranchise. And I think that's key. We're not talking about just insulting people. We're talking about disenfranchising, harming communities. You know, um, you know, th those are those are real measurable things, and we can we know and and things like what McDonald is doing, building the case for that, building the evidence base for that, is a real key part of the solution. You know, and and that's what we're trying to do from an online perspective, showing how things that are amplified and weaponized without um, without being mitigated cause real harm. And, you know, so the social media companies will have to answer for this. And so, you know, I think we are building that evidence base up collectively, uh, you know, and I think that there's, you know, seeing seeing the way that the winds are blowing, um, the social media companies will have to sort of adapt accordingly. And Arik's asked a question that's sort of quite close to what you're, what you were sort of talking about. He asks, what kind of engagement have each of you had or received from social media platforms with regard to tackling Islamophobia as a researcher, as an advocate or as a victim of Islamophobic abuse? I'm going to go to Faima first with that one because I think you've sort of, the abuse that you've received has been on social media so I think it's quite pertinent to sort of start with you. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I don't see much engagement um, from from people that are wanting to learn about it, who want to advocate, you know, and fight against Islamophobia. I, um, the opposite tends to happen. Uh, I think it also has to do a lot with the publication that I work for. I think the demographic is, you know, um, it's of it's quite you know the majority are white and they haven't had to grapple with a lot of the things that I write about such as racism and Islamophobia and religion culture that sort of thing so when I write these sorts of things they think it's very radical or it's completely false because um, you know they've never met anybody or they don't know anybody that's Muslim or they, they've never right. heard these things ever before so it, for them it's very easy to brush it off as false or fake or whatever so the very first reaction is you know it's resistance it's denial um and so it's not very often that i get someone who's willing to engage uh, with, with, with that sort of content um so unfortunately it's been a lot of you know abuse um being ratioed uh which is when they just comment like endlessly to try and get you to either like delete your tweet or privatize your account and that is a successful model it does work they will literally just annoy you until you've gotten rid of it and when I did that grooming gang one I remember um Majid Nawaz got in is that his name yeah <laughs> he got involved <laughs> I can't believe what his name he got involved and obviously he has a huge following and as soon as he commented uh, and we all know the kind of figure that he is. Well, as soon as he commented, it just my tweets just completely blew up. I had to delete, I had to delete it. Um, and then in other instances, I've had to privatize my account because it's relentless. Like they really want to get under your skin. That's what they they just will not let you rest. So unfortunately for me, my experience has been very sour. Okay. And what about you, McDad? I know you sort of spoke about your engagement with the media, but what about with social media platforms? So, so far, uh, my interaction with social media journalists has been quite limited. Um, uh, I've tried a little bit um, and had some response, but as a whole, the appetite seems to be a little bit uh, less than we need. Like, I mean, there are certain things that they can do quite easily if they want to. Um, yeah, firstly, it's, it's very, very clear that on the really dangerous stuff, they could act better, right? I'm talking about the, the, the unequivocal hate speech, the unequivocal, you know, um, when, when, a, when a, a bomber is going around Christchurch, um, sorry, a shooter going around Christchurch, murdering Muslims in a mosque, making sure that that's not streamable on your platform. It's a relatively straightforward thing to make sure it doesn't happen. I mean, that's like of the worst kind, definitely shouldn't happen. But there's lots of other things that they can be doing, right? Um, let's say, for example, there's a, a, a news story that um, that that is uh, that is published on the platform, and the the news organization later changes that news story, right? Because they realize it's wrong. In that situation, it's very possible if for that story, which has been shared quite a lot, that link which has been shared quite a lot, Facebook 
monitors that or Twitter monitors that. Anyone who's, who's had an impression or has got flicked past through that article or that tweet which has that fake story, Facebook knows because they, they monitor impressions. And given that, it's very easy for them to say, this story has now been retracted. They have the ability to make that information known to people, should they choose to do so. They have chosen not to do so. And at the moment, they're, they're taking a very light touch approach to, to fake news generally, um, and hate speech in particular, um, with, with only, you know, hate, with hate speech from a political leader like Trump, hardly touch, but fake news from him, at least there are these little, you know, um, uh, words underneath saying this, this information is disputed, which is starting to move in the direction that we need to. But, but when it comes to fake news from, um, and hate speech in particular, from a large number of other people outside the biggest, most important people in the world, very little is done. And I think that there's, there's a question of resource, which they can put more money to. There's a question of um, willingness to act, which actually has only been almost with them kicking and screaming, they're sort of coming down to an approach of taking some action. And, and then there's a question of genuine accountability. I mean, when people have died, I mean, died in places like Sri Lanka, and, like, and, and they have had to apologize for their role in some of these really quite abhorrent situations. When, when that is the extent to which things are happening, they need to take greater responsibility, greater accountability. And at the moment, their willingness to engage is quite limited. And what do you think the role of us as consumers of social media, of media is in all of this, in sort of pushing social media companies to be more accountable? It's really tough. I mean, the, the, the reality is the power is with the few, not with the many. Um, there are obviously every now and then, you know, when, when many people, and I mean millions or, or hundreds of thousands, you know, talk about a certain topic and highlight how awful it has been, that might, and that has elicited some sort of action. But, but we have, I mean, when you see that when it comes to um, the racism of President Trump, whether it comes to, you know, at, at the biggest levels in, in, in some of these social media giants uh, and the, the, the platform that they, that they have been able to give to, to hate speech. I mean, there's nothing else you can talk about. It's, it's genuine hate speech from, from, from main people using platforms like Twitter and Facebook. Um, unfortunately, there isn't that willingness to act. And I think that despite millions of people speaking out against it. So I think there is some responsibility on us to try and highlight it. And, and, and it's important to try and do so and to, to advocate on behalf of, 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 of people across the globe. But in reality, it's these top people, the decision makers who need to be held to account. And, and sometimes, and I worry about this when, it, when this is the only solution, but sometimes it, it, it requires politicians to say, and, and, and as I had talked about earlier, you know, senators to write to these guys to get them to act because they don't listen to the random Joe or random, random Fatima or, 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 or Muhammad on the street, right? They, they, they listen, unfortunately, to, the, to those who are able to influence them and, 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 and make a difference. And I'm, my hope is that, and I think Zahid talked about this quite well, you know, in a Biden era, um, maybe there's going to be a different approach from some of the leaders and decision makers that some of this stuff just won't get tolerated anymore. And that's the reality. They have the power. And I, I hope that that will change uh, in terms of uh, they will change their attitude, but they have to make that decision, unfortunately. I want us all to, 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 to I know there's someone saying we, we do matter. Of course, all of us matter in this, but in terms of the decision-making specifically, they have all of the power in this. So I wanted to bring Zahid in on this question as well, but I also sort of want to put this other question that's come into you from an anonymous attendee. Firstly, they say thank you for a really interesting discussion on the work you're all doing in this area. I think you're all great as well. Um, so they say, Zahid, you spoke about crafting the narrative through media appearances. What balance should be struck in this narrative crafting media work between talking about the extent of Islamophobia versus celebrating the success of integration and celebrating the diversity and nuances of Muslim communities or other positive messaging? So if you could talk about sort of social media first and then sort of come on to this? So much of the answer to this question has to do with what's done um, in, in public and what's done in private. And I think we do, we tend to, in the past, we've tended to focus a lot on a public reaction, which is fine. Um, and I think we need to invest more in what we can do in private. And by that, I mean, as has been referenced earlier, 
being at the table where decisions are made. I mentioned Senator Dick Durbin writing this letter and getting his colleagues to sort of join in talking about anti-Muslim bigotry. His chief of staff is a Muslim. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, I mean, the, 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 I meant there was a question about the Biden administration, what they'll what they'll do. Engage, which is the organization that was leading the million Muslim vote campaign, um, um, had we had a private call with him, with three thousand Muslims watching, where he promised that he would staff his administration to look like America, which includes Muslim Americans, and would hire Muslim Americans. And sure enough, his transition team has three Muslims on it, two who served in the Obama administration. So there's a really, you know, I mean, it's, it's already it's starting to look like those promises will be kept and those very talented individuals will be helping make decisions about these issues from the inside. So we need that combination. We need to be in the boardrooms, in the heart of political power, in, in the heart of uh, the creative industries. And then of course have the public faces. I mean, I mean, Hassan Minaj just in the last year was doing so much to change the narrative uh, about Muslims before his show sadly got canceled. Just one of many, many people in the public space, uh, you know, who, who, who are directly challenging the things that Islamophobia thrives on. And, and part of the, the part of this narr this narrative crafting process is sucking the oxygen out of the air that allows Islamophobia to grow. Remember, a lot of these people are filling in vacuums. You know, some are doing it, of course, all you know, a lot of them doing it very deliberately. Others are filling in the vacuum with what makes them feel good or what makes them, you know, make sense of the world. Um, and it's it's hard, but the more that we can fill in those spaces with voices um, that are showing the true face of Muslim communities in all their diversity around the world, the better chance that we have of limiting the impact of Islamophobia. It'll always be there, uh, but but mitigating it and, and in a multilateral way is really the way we have to look at this. And, and there's a, you know, there's a part that every different sector and every different person with different talents can do to, to, to actually, you know, to, to be that thousand points of light um, to, to, to limit the impact of Islamophobia. So just bringing Faime in, you're in your role as a journalist, I, I guess you do a lot of this sort of crafting of the narrative and you're writing sort of positive articles about Muslims, writing about Muslims celebrating during Ramadan. What, what, is your position on sort of the balance in talking about Islamophobia and sort of celebrating successes and diversity? I think it's important to do both um, because you know, people react differently to both types of stories. Um, and unfortunately, if you, some people will perceive you as constantly banging on about Islamophobia. Um, I've got journalist friends, I've seen people who are constantly you know, fighting the good fight, speaking up against Islamophobia, but what happens is people get desensitized from that and they sort of just start ignoring it eventually because they're like, oh, this person's banging on about the same thing over and over again. So while I do try to report on like, you know, research that shows prejudice towards Muslims, towards minority groups, I also try to humanize them, as I've said, um, and celebrate our existence, you know, and sometimes it's also important not to signal, like not to, um, signpost that it's a, it's a Muslim person doing something for the first time because then we have that sort of model my you know model minority myth you know when we where we only celebrate exemplary Muslims or you know an exemplary a minority person um, so sometimes it, it's really about you know balancing and um, I try I try to you know on occasion I'll be like it's important that a Muslim person has achieved something given the system of oppression that works against them and other times it's important not to mention their background at all to show that you know especially where it's to do with something that's quintessentially British or and so on because you need to show that Muslims are part of Britain so you don't need to signal them and be like oh look a Muslim person did this you know because why why should why should you would never say a white person did this so sometimes you need to make as natural as possible that muslim people exist and you know they're achieving x y and z so it's really about balancing um i just wanted to move on because we've got about six minutes left there's a lot of interest in the q a about the u.s election so majid majid asks in your opinion did unchecked hate speech and Islamophobia on online platforms 
contribute to Donald Trump's election and increased vote in 2020. He also says, I'm a big fan of all of you and thanks for all you do to tackle Islamophobia. Um, so I'll start with you, Zahid, and then we can go to McDad on that one. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, look, I mean, in 2016, you know, one of the biggest shocking things that Trump did was to announce a ban on all Muslims entering the country. And, you know, part of it was the shock of it. Um, but then he really went and tried to do it, you know, and, 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 and did it for, for, you know, for many countries. And it was, it's hard to measure quantitatively what factored into his election and whether how much Islamophobia was a part of it. But um, anecdotally, I think it's, it's very clear that it was a huge part of it. And, 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 and it's not just the Muslim ban, but everything that he has done regarding Ilhan Omar or just you know, Islamophobia in general throughout his four years as president. Um, so I, I think unquestionably it, it worked. And, it, and, there, and again, the reason he did it is it worked in the past. It worked on a smaller scales in the past. Uh, we've just never, we had just never seen a presidential candidate do it. Okay, Dad. Yeah, I think I think that's 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 spot. I mean, the number of examples of Trump during the campaign saying something, not just slightly but blatantly Islamophobic, was was quite worrying. I mean, you see, as as I had mentioned, you know, the way that he talked about Ilhan Omar basically at every rally he had, talking about how how she doesn't love our country, she uh, she comes from abroad, she's our secret weapon, and um, she's basically trying to link her to terrorists and 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 and, and hate. I mean, it, it's it, it's very, very worrying. And it, and the specific focus on, firstly, the squad as a whole, all four of them as, as non-white problem characters, and then in particular, Elhan Omar, um, and probably more than any of the others, um, to some extent, uh, demonstrates the specific extra uh, penalty that, that Ilham got because she's she's a, a Muslim woman and I, and uh, the, her Muslimness was 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 targeted quite quite clearly and unequivocally and it, it's not just what Trump says it's also the the, the culture that he's um, created in the party where people where, where where you can have um, people like um, what Marjorie um, Great Green Taylor I think her name is yeah um, from from you know people who have just virulently anti-Muslim, disgusting racist views being basically given a, a free ride because they win in a, in a seat which, which they, 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 you know, Republicans will always win. And they end up becoming a, a member of Congress. I mean, it, it's, it's a hateful, uh, it's not just him saying it, it's the culture in the party that has got so bad that that level of Islamophobia has actually um, uh, reached a level by which people are being elected to Congress despite having such hateful views and I, and I think that that is is, is such a problem that, that it's going to have it's going to have long-term ramifications for the party in terms of what it's what it's created yeah and I've had one more question from Tahmid who asks how do you reckon Biden's presidency will be for Muslims or will it be the same old I think Zahid you answered that before but I wanted to sort of ask that but along with it the sort of parallel question about representation so obviously here in the UK we've had a lot of like or a bit of Muslim representation in parliament in the media on TV with the likes of Sajid Javid with the likes of Sadiq Khan and so on how do you think like as well as sort of Biden's presidency how do you think sort of having Muslims in positions of power or people who are sympathetic to the sort of positionality of Muslims and to the role of Islamophobia, how much do you think that actually serves to tackle these issues? Or is it sort of by the by and when the person's gone, the motive's gone? I'll start with you, Zahid. Yeah, I think it's important not to get too starry-eyed about um, being at the table. Uh, we had a lot of Muslims in the Obama administration, and while that was light years better than the Trump administration, there's a lot to be critical of. Um, now, having said that, there's a lot, I mean, having Muslims at high levels, and there were from State Department, Defense Department, and, and so forth, doing great work independently of who Obama was, for example. Um, there is, you know, so it greatly outweighs the risk of just getting absorbed into the system and getting 
you know, becoming one of the cogs that that run this huge complex thing called, you know, government. Um, they're still, you know, you'll, you know, your chances may be not 100% of making positive change, but they'll certainly be 0% if you're not there. So I think, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a good thing. It's important. Um, representation alone is just the first step. It doesn't mean that, you know, just having the faces, and I'm sorry, you can look at the Tory government and they always trot out ethnic minorities, but that doesn't change what the government <laughs> is doing. We, we need to make sure that, um, that uh, the things that we, A, that we care about on social justice, and again, with allies in mind, you know, uh, one of the things that is, you know, McDonald was mentioning about Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, she's probably the, 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 the most, will be the most anti-Muslim member of Congress, but there's a value of having sunlight on someone like that, because she'll be surrounded by 537 under other members of Congress who will have to choose to confront that. And you'll quickly see who the people are that are our allies and the people who are, uh, you know, who are going to um, not take a stand against some of the things that she does. And that's really important to know because that evidence can be used against political candidates that are gonna perpetuate Islamophobia and we can try to get our allies to vote them out. So there is a, there is a little bit of a benefit of all this th stuff coming to the surface because we can identify where it's coming from, who's supporting it, who's promoting it and crafting a strategy to conquer it. Yeah, definitely. And I think sort of all of us a little bit can speak to the experience of being in positions where we are the representation. And I think there is a difficulty that each person faces, I think, Sometimes we often talk about actually when people are in positions and they're sort of representing, we talk about the people who are doing it well and the people who are doing it poorly, but actually one part of the discussion that always gets missed is how difficult it is to advocate for yourself, for your community. And you sort of touched upon it a little bit, Faima, earlier when you mentioned sort of being ratioed or sort of bringing things up with your editors and not being taken seriously or sort of being denied and I think like we've probably all I certainly have like in my day job I work in policy which I most of the time am the only woman around the table if not like the only brown person the only Muslim and so I think we've got to also recognize that representation is difficult but it's difficult for us the representees as well um, I just, oh, I've, I've been told I have to close this up, but I'm going to give you all a minute to do some closing statements and if you want to come back on that. So I'll start with you, McDad. Um, thank you. I, I think that when we talk about a lot of the racism and the Islamophobia that we, that we all face and that, that, that is prevalent within our society, we have only touched on the surface of its scale. It's what we've talked a lot about here is part of the issue in terms of its prevalence in the media and, and, and online. We also have to recognize how it manifests within the structures across society, whether it's in politics, which we've talked a little bit about, but also in public life. You know, it's, it, as a Muslim, it's harder to get insurance. You pay a thousand pounds more if your name is Muhammad. You, you're less likely to have a, to get a job because you're, if you, and lots of studies show that. If you're in university, uh, in many of these in criminal justice, you're more likely to be in prison. There are lots of these different areas in socioeconomic status. Muslims are, uh, half of Muslims live in the 10% most deprived areas of the UK. So there are structural issues when it comes to Islamophobia. So when we talk about how we're going to challenge it, we're talking about a major issue that, that, that won't be able to be resolved quickly. And there's a long way to go, but we have to be hopeful. There's still um, things that are successful that have made indents. We've got a long way to go. We need to support those who are able to make a difference. Um, thank you. Uh, Faima, do you have any sort of closing thoughts or words? Um, not really. Um, other than, I guess, uh, you know, as, as Muslims, I guess, keep applying pressure to the very few that do represent you, uh, journalists, politicians, whoever, um, you know, just because a minority is in a position of power doesn't mean they're your friend um, necessarily. So always keep applying pressure, keep questioning them and always reconsider the platform that you give them because not everyone's going to have your best interests. And if you if you see somewhere uh, an area that lacks representation or people like you, then try and fill it or try and 
do something about it, I guess. Um, and so I hit you get the last word. Sure, I mean, we're talking about things like government and the social media platforms and the internet writ large, but really one of the things that every single person can do um, where they are is to meet people who aren't of your faith and get them to know the real you and, and the real face of Islam. I mean, one of the things I learned from my mother-in-law is that they moved to a neighborhood that was all white and they immediately invited everyone in the neighborhood over for food to get to know them. And when an EDL march happened down the street, they all got out in the street literally to sort of protect them. We did the same thing on our street when we moved to where we are and made sure that everyone knew us. And, you know, there's a sense that it makes a difference. And that ripple effect will eventually reach the internet, will eventually reach government, will eventually reach the media. Um, that's one thing that we can all do, that we don't have to have a technical brain or a political brain. Just get people to let get to know a Muslim in real life. And that is a wonderful thought to end this on. So thank you so much for being an excellent panel and thank you for everyone who's joined and asked questions. Um, I'll let you all sort of get on with your evenings.